0: Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Today, we are continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but we're going to start a new four-week series uh, based on chapters 2 and 3. And that's where we're going to be in over the next uh, few weeks. And this new series, we're calling The Church I've Always Wanted. Now, let me kind of explain that just a little bit. You know, I I shared with you at the beginning, when we jumped into Ephesians 1, I said, you know, Ephesians has this very simple structure to it. So the first three chapters, chapters one through three, are all about gospel explanation. So it's all about what God has done for us. And then chapters four, five, and six are all about gospel application, how to live out what God has done for us. And and so the first half of the book is, is all about the grace revealed to us that makes possible and makes desirable the commands that we see in four, five, and six. And so you see this very simple structure right in the middle of Ephesians. So once you see it, it really begins, the book begins to pop out to you a little bit more. Now we're going to be focusing in chapters two and three over these next few weeks, and we're going we're to continue to see the Apostle Paul lay out all that God has done for us in those chapters, but there's a slight turn, there's a slight shift, if you will, and uh, he's, he's really talking more about what about who we are as the church. He's describing kind of the nature of the church, the corporate unity that we have as as a church. So in other words, he's not talking as much about who I am He's he's more discussing or describing who we are as a congregation. So you're going to see these different phrases that he throws in. He, He describes us as fellow citizens. He talks about us as being members of the household of God. He talks about us being the temple of God or the dwelling place of God. So you begin to see he's really pulling back a little bit and he's looking at the church as a whole and helping us try to understand who we really are as the body of Christ. So what's what's his aim in that? What's he trying to do in that? Well, I think I think it's pretty simple. I think he's just trying to cast vision for the people, for, they, for them to understand who we are and, and really God's vision for the church. And I think it's, I think it's a healthy thing for us as a congregation to revisit and you know, remember and recommit to God's vision for the local church. Because one thing I've learned as a pastor is that vision has this tendency to leak. It just drains right out. And if we're not careful, we start drifting away from from who God wants us to be and what God wants us to do. So what kind of church does God want us to be? What is God working in us as a congregation? I think that's the question we want to try to answer in this series, The Church I've Always Wanted. So we're going we're gonna to look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. This is one of the most, This is one of the most incredible passages in all of Scripture. This is a good one, and it is chock full. So I'm going to ask if you are willing and able, would you stand together for the reading of God's Word? We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And so he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, For by, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So I think this is one of the, one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, because really these 10 verses represent the biography of every Christian. I mean, if you're a Christian today, this is your story. We just read your story. This is my story. And what unites us as a congregation, the one, the one thing that, that draws us together, that brings us together every single Lord's Day, every single week, the one thing that brings us together, that unifies us, is that we share in the story of the gospel it is our shared story in Christ and so God has worked his grace in our in our lives in different ways and in different times and and so the particulars of how God has worked in your life and in my life may be different but the story is the same in the story we just read in verses 1 through 10 and I would submit to you that one of the greatest arguments for the truth of the Christian faith is the story of your transformed life the story of how God revealed himself to you of how God saved you, of how God changed you. It is, it is a story that no skeptic can refute. And uh, it is a mark of the truth of Christianity. Now, just having a story of, of how God saved you and changed you and transformed you, does that, does that mean that we're perfect Christians? Absolutely not. Doesn't mean that at, at all. You know, I'll, I'll talk to people and every now and then people will, you know, say to me, well, you know, I, I don't go to church because there's just so many hypocrites at church. And uh, maybe you've heard that before. And uh, man, I'm so tempted to say, I'm afraid I'm gonna say it one day, but I'm just so tempted to say, well, you know, you should come. We got room for one more, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I'm not gonna be that snarky. So, um, but I just smile, you know, and, and uh, you know, just try to talk, them, talk another way through that. But you know, the reality is you're gonna see faults. You're gonna see failures, the reality is, is you're going to see sinful habits. You're going to see, you're going to see brokenness in the church, right? You're going to see sin in the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we just ignore it and pretend it's not there. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is nowhere in the Bible do you see that someone who's been saved, someone who's experienced the transform, transforming work of God's grace, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we've been made perfect or complete. Nowhere. And so to be transformed by the gospel doesn't mean you've arrived. It means you've just started the journey. That's all it means. And we're just all sojourners in that journey. We're all just moving down the road. But none of us, none of us have arrived. And that's why Christians are called to continually grow in grace. And so Christians have no claims on perfection. Our claim is we've been forgiven. That's the claim. And so as Christians, we've been transformed, but we are in the process also of being transformed. So, so in this passage that we're going to look at today, uh, the Apostle Paul describes the work of God in bringing about this transformation, and it is significant. There is no question about it. Uh, he describes this. He paints this picture. He really paints three pictures for us, and this is what I really want us to talk about today. He paints this picture of what we were. And then he transitions and describes what God did. And then he ends it, he punctuates it by by talking about what we are now. And that's exactly what I want us to look at. What we were, what God has done, and what we are now in Christ. I think the more we understand the transforming work of god and his grace in our lives the more we will continue to grow and lean into this transformation as a church so let's look at the first one you know a transformed church knows number one what we were a transformed church knows what we were and let me just i tried to make this as simple as i could for us so that we could just kind of grab onto it what were we well three things we were we were dead we were disobedient and we were doomed Let's read it, verses 1 through 3. Now notice how the Apostle Paul describes this. This is loaded. There's so much here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So let's, let's look at the first one. First of all, what he says is we were dead. And he's talking to a group of Christians and he's describing to them what they once were. And he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about, he's talking about being spiritually dead, being eternally dead is what he's describing here. He's talking about our state before we came to christ that we were separated from god and we were dead and it wasn't just us because look how he tags the end of verse three we were like the rest of mankind he says so what he's talking about is a universal condition of the human race what he's talking about is the state of every unbeliever as being spiritually dead we know this to be true right i mean all you have to do is scan the headlines I mean, we, do you know that we are closer than we've ever been since World War II? We are closer today to World War III than we've ever been over, over the last several decades. You think about there are more people enslaved today than ever before in human history. You, you think about the drug, you know, drug abuse. You think about political corruption in both parties. You talk about, you talk about yeah, just skyrocketing debt, you know, crime drug abuse and then IU's not even going to make the tournament this year I mean it, I mean something is going on right we know this world is broken and so people tell us all the time well, well we, we just need more education or we just need a little bit more tolerance we need a little bit more kindness we, we need a little bit more understanding you know all of this stuff and none of those solutions can solve anything you know why because our problem is man is dead that's the problem Man's problem is he is spiritually dead. He's absolutely dead. He's alienated from the life of God. His body lives, but man is spiritually dead. He lacks lacks the life where he can recognize and respond to the voice of God. And so man in his dead state can't know God. He can't understand God. Man in his dead state. His dead state can't even comprehend God. Man in his dead state cannot even have a relationship with God. Man in his dead state cannot fulfill God's word and he cannot enjoy God's blessing. See, the unbelieving person is not merely sick. The unbelieving person is dead. Absolutely dead. That's who we were. Before we came to Christ, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, what is death? Death is just the inability to respond to stimuli. That's what he's describing here. We have no ability in and of ourselves to respond in any way. I don't know if you've heard the name Jeremy Bentham, but Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher that lived in England in the late 1700s. I think he died around 1830. And he's a very interesting figure in human history. Uh, he was a philosopher, and he developed the philosophy called utilitarianism, which, which if I understand it correctly, utilitarianism is anything is right if, if, the majority of, if it makes the majority of the people happy. So any action's right if the majority of people go with it. But the problem with that is most of the time the majority is wrong. But anyway, uh, but, but the, so he came up with utilitarianism. So he's just kind of an interesting, eccentric, and odd guy. But when Bentham died... In his will, he left a London hospital, his fortune. And so, so, but there was only one condition for this London hospital to receive you know his estate and his fortune. He would have to be present at every single board meeting post mortem. Okay? So, in other words, every board meeting, he would have to be there even though he's dead. So, you know what they did? the London hospital wheeled his skeleton remains into the boardroom. They, they dressed him in 18th century garb. They put a waxed head on his shoulders and he was present at every single board meeting at this London hospital for 100 years. And in the minutes, it recorded this, the minutes of every single meeting, present, Jeremy them, but not voting. <laughs> now, do you know what the apostle Paul what the apostle Paul's point is in chapter 2 verse 1 Before Christ you were present but you weren't voting. You know why? Because before Christ we were dead. Absolutely dead. And so the spiritual spiritually dead man doesn't need repair. The spiritually dead repair a man doesn't need restoration the spiritually dead man doesn't need renewal what he needs is resurrection that's what he needs and this is what we were before we came to Christ secondly we were not just dead we were disobedient let's look at the rest of verse one he says you were dead in the in the trespasses and sins so what he's describing here he's going to start using several words to describe what characterized our life before we were a Christian. And what characterized our life before we were a Christian is disobedience. Like the number one characteristic of our life was disobedience. Look how he describes it. You were dead in the trespasses. What's a trespass? What does the word trespass mean? It just simply means this. It means to slip or fall off the path. That's what it means. It means means that... We, we lose our way, that, that man has a big problem. We're, we're not just dead, but we've gotten off the path, and we can't get back on. That is a huge problem. And so we've completely lost our way, and we can't get back. And so that's what he's saying here. You were dead in, the, in your trespasses, and then he adds the word Sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what is, what is sin? Well, sin is just breaking the law of God. It's, it's moral evil, if you will. And so the Greek word for sin is harmatia. And it means, harmatia is a Greek word that just means to shoot at something and miss the target. So you miss the mark. So we're not just dead. We're not just off the path. Now we've missed the mark. We've missed God's target. What is God's target? This is the biggest misunderstanding for people in central Indiana. A lot of people in central Indiana think God's target is just being a good person. That's not God's target. It was never God's target. God's target was perfection. That's his target. And we miss the mark of perfection. God said, be holy for I am holy. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. We have missed the mark of perfection. And so Romans 3 says that we fall short of the glory of God. So that's what we were. He's describing not only our our dead state but he's describing our disobedience but he doesn't end there he tags it with a few more phrases look at verse two he says he uses this word worldly or the world he says in verse two what we were we were following the course of this world now what is the course of this world what does he mean by that i think what he's talking about here is the world system of life apart from god He's talking about a way of living where we live as if God doesn't exist. We live in the delusion that God doesn't exist and we're all good. It's the way of the world, right? It's It's the world system that's set up against God's way. It's the world system that is set up against God's word. And while man is dead to God, he's alive to the world. He's, he's, he's following all of its impulses. He, he's, he's given himself to the world's priorities, to, to the world's pursuits. He's, he has given himself to the world's philosophies. And these priorities and these pursuits and these philosophies have one thing in common. They're aligned against God. This is the course of the world. So it's not just that we're, we're dead, and we are, and, and, and it's not just that we were off the path and we missed the mark but he also describes our, our situation as, man we were actively following the course of the world we were living in rebellion against god then he throws in this next phrase look at verse 2. the next word here that, he, that would describe this is our disobedience to satan he says following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience so the prince of the power of the air what does he mean by that he's just talking about the atmosphere just around us right the prince of the atmosphere uh in which we live and so he's, he's obviously describing Satan here and so so when you think about who is it that's running the world's system that is in rebellion against God well Satan is so we're following the course of the world but we're actually following the prince of the power of the air. His spirit is the one who's at work in the sons of disobedience. It's his spirit that empowers them and energizes them. And uh, so I share with you all the time, you know, I, I, I'm always explaining to you that God works through people to accomplish his purposes. Well, Satan works through people too. And uh, his spirit is the spirit at work in the world system through the sons and the daughters of disobedience, people that are characterized by disobedience to God. But notice the next phrase that he uses to describe our disobedience. He says, passions of the flesh in verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So we weren't just dead to God, we, we weren't just buried in trespasses and sins, We weren't just under the incessant influence of the world's wicked system. It wasn't just that we were just following Satan, you know, working in and through us, but behind all of that, he adds to it, we were following our passions and desires. What does this look like? Well, it's very simple. It means that whatever the mind wants, the mind goes after to get. Whatever the desires that we have, we give ourselves to those desires. And so, and so it means that our, our passions and our sinful desires were in charge. They were driving everything. And this is what he's talking about. This is what we were describing. We were dead. We were sinful. We were worldly. We were satanic. We were disobedient and driven by the passions of the flesh. That's what we were. You guys feeling encouraged today? You feeling all pumped up today? You guys feeling that? Well, we're not done because we weren't just dead. We weren't just disobedient. Third, he says, we were doomed. We were absolutely doomed. See, the result of our disobedience incurs the wrath of God. You see this in verse 3. He says, we were by nature, children of wrath, this is the core essence of what we were. We were children of wrath. The result of our disobedience is god 's just punishment. His just justice, his perfect justice requires our punishment that we earned god 's wrath. I mean you have to I mean you, you have to see this for what it is I mean this is in the cosmic courtroom before the judge of all of the earth the before the the very essence of goodness and holiness as we consider the fact that we were dead as we consider the fact we were off the path as we consider that we were you know that we missed the mark that we were following the world that we were following satan that we were following our desires we're asked how we plead, and the only thing we can say is guilty on all counts. That is what we were. That is who we are. And, and, so, and so the justice means we should be punished. Justice means we deserve to be punished. We earned it. This is what we have coming to us. And so we were, by nature, children of God. Of wrath. Now, I think we need to understand this phrase, the wrath of God, because I think, you know, when preachers or Bible teachers say this, I think sometimes what could come up to your mind is a picture of God who's just in a rage, he's out of control, he's just throwing stuff and kicking things and, you know, blow, striking people down, you know, with lightning and fire and smoke or whatever, uh, and, and that's just not it at all. We talk about the wrath of God, that, that's not it at all. Do you, do you know most of the time, you know what the wrath of God is? The wrath of God is just letting you go. Letting you walk in disobedience. Just giving you over, Romans 1 says. Just, just letting you go. Just taking the restraints off of you so that you can go all in on sin, Satan, and selfishness. And he doesn't have to destroy you because what, what does sin do? It destroys us for us. And so his wrath is just saying, okay, this is what you want, you can have it. And uh, that's not a really good place to be. And, um, and so, you know, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to really reading Scripture, it's tempting to think that as you read different stories in the Old Testament, you think, man, God is just ticked off in the Old Testament, man. He is kicking butt and taking names, man. You know? and, so, and then you get to the New Testament, you're like, man, Jesus is like Mr. Rogers, you know, changing his sweater off, changing his shoes, getting on a train. We're going around the neighborhood, you know, this is all cool. And I'm just telling you that is a misperception. You're misreading it. Because I'm just, I'll just say, if you just read the book of Revelation, there's nothing in the Old Testament that comes close to what's coming in the book of Revelation. The judgment and the wrath of God for sin, and it's just. And so that's what we were. We were doomed. Now, can I just say this? Because it needs to be said. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not a Christian, you need to become a Christian because you are headed for the wrath of God. And I'm not saying this so that I can be some kind of fire and brimstone preacher. I'm just trying to warn you, this is the truth. This is the truth. And so God's wrath comes to sinners. Your debt has to be taken care of. It has to be covered. It's got to be adjudicated. It has to be paid. And so, I mean, here's the bottom line. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Either Jesus dies or we die or justice dies. One of those three is gonna die because payment has to be made for our sin and our rebellion against God. And so now we know justice is not gonna die, so that only leads to other options. It's either Jesus' death or yours. See, you go back into that cosmic courtroom, right? And you're asked how you plead in light of all the evidence. And you plead Guilty. And all of a sudden, the sentence of judgment and condemnation comes down. And then your brother steps up next to you and says, Your honor, I'll be his substitute. I'll be her substitute. The condemnation and wrath and punishment, let me take it in their place. And so, Christianity is not trusting in you, it's trusting in your substitute, capital S. It's trusting in Jesus, and that is the only way that we get through this, and so receiving him and putting your faith and trust in him. So that is what we were. That's what he is describing in Ephesians chapter 2 here, but then there's this transition, and we see this picture. He starts, he starts bringing out what God has done, and what he has done is he has made us alive. You see this shift in verse 4. Notice, notice what he says. These are the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Verse 4, but God. But God. It's the biggest but in all of Scripture right there, okay? And I'm not even trying to be funny. This is the biggest but in all of Scripture. This is what we were. We were children of wrath, but God. We were following the course of the world. We were enemies with God, but God. And uh, What we see is that God takes the initiative. God makes the first step. You know why God takes the initiative? You know why he makes the first move? Because dead men can't do anything. You you can't do anything. You're dead. And so he makes the first move. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so what you see in verses 4 through 7 is he He paints the picture of the character of God, and then he paints this picture connecting it to the work of God. And both of them are inseparable, right? So we see these two things happening in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. We see this picture of God's character, what he is like, and and then you see this picture of what he's done. So let's let's look at what he is like, the character of God. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. So what does mercy mean? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is holding back what should come to us. It's not getting what we deserve. And so mercy speaks of what God doesn't give to us, even though it's right for him to give it to us. We should have it, but he he has mercy on us because we deserve the punishment, we deserve to be judged, we deserve to be condemned, but God was rich in mercy. Notice that word rich. It means boundless. It means limitless it means exhaustless right so God in his mercy is boundless right He's he an unending supply of mercy verse 4 because of his great love with which he loved us so he's not just a God of mercy but he's a God of great love notice the descriptor there he could have just said God likes you and that would have been true he could have said, God loves you. That would have been true, but he doesn't say that. He says, but it's with great love that God loved us. You see that? He, he's throwing rich in mercy, but great love as well. And so the question is, well, why does God give us mercy? Is it because we deserve it? Because we were good people? Because we were worth saving? No, he, he gives us mercy because of his great love for us. Like he set his affection on us. This is a love beyond our comprehension, and this is, a, as humans, like, we struggle to even understand this kind of love because we love people who love us. You know, we love people who are nice to us. We love people who we think are attractive. But that's not the kind of love working here. We were God's enemies and he loved us. We were, we were on the other team and he loved us. He's like, you know what, I think I'm going to show my love to them. And... Uh, he pours it out on us in, in just great quantities. Then notice this, so it's not just mercy and love, but God also shows us grace. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were, we were dead and just being off the path, couldn't get back on the path, but he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, we said mercy is not getting what you deserve. What is grace then? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So the two are working together. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What mercy does is it pities us and it holds back. But grace does something more. It pardons and then it releases. So he's holding back because he has compassion on us. But then not only that, he pardons us and then releases us. In spite of our deadness, in spite of our following the course of this world, in spite of following Satan, and following, in spite of following our own passions and desires, he does all of this. So, so this is what God is like. This is a picture of his mercy, his love, and his grace. Now, what about the work of God? Well, go back up to verse 5. Notice what God does. This, we, we, we're not, we haven't done anything at this point. This is all what God has done for us. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And so we were dead. We were walking zombies. We were dead to God. We needed resurrection, and that's exactly what God gave us. When Jesus walked by Lazarus' tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And you know what did, you know what Lazarus did? He got up out of that tomb and walked out. And so one I heard one person say, if Jesus had not said the word Lazarus, everybody in the cemetery would have gotten up. That's his power. And that's what he did for us. He called us. He called us out. He raised us out of deadness. And he gave us new life. Church, listen to me. Christianity is not about being religious. It's not about following do's and don'ts. Christianity is having new life, new life within you, that um, I I used to be far from him, and now I'm close, right? And I, I used to be off the path, but now he's put me back on. I used to be dead, but now I'm alive. That's what it is. Christianity is about coming alive to the things of God, but he didn't He didn't just stop there he made us alive but verse 6 it says this and he raised us up with him and so we were dead so he raised us up with him so what this means is you know we we used to couldn't comprehend god because we were dead We, we used to couldn't obey god because we were dead we couldn't please God because we were dead. We, we couldn't enjoy God because we were dead. But now we're alive. We're awakened to God. We can hear God. We can serve God. We can love God. We're alive to God. We can praise God now. And it's all because he raised us up. Jesus said it like this, because I live, you also will live. He said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So, so get this, church. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He rose to give us new life. So it wasn't just his death. It was his resurrection that brings us life. He takes our wrath. He goes into the grave, but then he rises, he raises us up for new life. He applies his death and his resurrection to us. This is is the great miracle of the gospel. We are uh, united with Christ modern term for that we are synced up with christ we were with him in his death we are with him in his resurrection life and then he adds this so he made us alive he raised us up with him verse six and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so i i think i did a poor job of trying to explain this last week so let me take another shot at it here so what he's talking about it is this we, we have literally been seated with him in heavenly places. So what that means is we are now citizens of heaven. Our, our life is in heaven. So that means our priorities are heavenly priorities. Our affections are heavenly affections. Um, our focus is a heavenly focus because this is not our home. We don't get all wrapped up in what's going on here, here. Because our home is in heaven. this is, We're just passing through, right? Because we've been seated in heavenly places. We've got a home that we're going to that we haven't ever seen before. And so, and so that's what he's talking about when he means we've seated us with him. We need to be about the Father's heavenly business because that's where we are. Now, we still have to deal with the devil. We still have to deal with the desires of the flesh. We still have to, you know, we still feel the pull of the world, but we dwell in heavenly places, and that is what God has done for us. He has made us alive to Him. Here's the last one: What we are now, we are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Let's walk through this. Verse eight. He says, "This for by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your doing, of your own doing." It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one could boast. So, what he's saying here is this that salvation is entirely a gift from God. So, it was initiated by God, it was facilitated by God, it was consummated by God. That's what he's saying here. And, and so, so we, we, don't, we don't bring anything to the table in our salvation. You know, one theologian said the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's all we brought to the table. And I think it's tempting for us as believers to think, well, you know, God brings the grace and then I meet him halfway with the faith. So it's his grace, but it's my faith. What he's saying in this passage so clearly is even the faith that opens the door to the grace is a gift from God as well. That's what he's saying. We are totally completely in his debt can you can you imagine if salvation were partly our work you imagine what heaven would be like if we were walking around comparing ourselves to each other and our different levels of faith well you know i got more faith than you i'm better than you you know How in the world did she get in? She's got all this little faith over here. You know what I mean? We would be doing that. But see, in in the biblical plan of salvation, the entire thing is the gift of God. So you know what we're going to be doing? We're not going to be comparing. We're going to be praising. We're going to be praising God. That's what we're going to be doing. Now notice this. Salvation is not just a gift from God, but salvation results in walking in good works. Look at this, verse 10. So this is the evidence of salvation, right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is why God created us, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So that word workmanship, it literally means we are God's work of art. We are his his masterpiece, we're his symphony, if you will, you know, we're, we're his... The great novel that he's written, he's the author of. He's crafting us and shaping us into a new creation, and we bear the marks of the artist all over us. And what that is is a story of transformation. And so that's what he's done, and we are we are his workmanship. You know, a few years ago, they discovered they discovered a second Mona Lisa, and uh, she's a little bit younger. She's a little bit more smiley. Um, but there's this whole debate on whether or not she's actually the work of da Vinci. Um, so there's a big debate about that. But there should be no doubt, church, that you and I belong to God because the evidence should bear that out. The evidence of living for him, of good works flowing flowing out of our lives not for our salvation but good works flowing from our salvation does that make sense huge difference there and uh, that's exactly what we're talking about now interesting little structure to this passage if you go back and you you know you notice verse 2 He's talking about how we once walked in sins and trespasses, and then he finishes the entire passage in verse 10 by talking about now we've walked in good works. You see that contrast? He's talking about how we're walking, how we're living. We used to do this. We used to walk this way, but because of everything that God has done and his transforming work in our life, now we walk in good works. So just a little textual intention there. He's trying to bring out the contrast, the transforming work of God's grace in our life. Let me, let me just close with this. You know, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, the late Pastor Tim Keller, was a pastor in New York City. And uh, he's written a book called The Reason for God. It's a really, uh, really good book. I'd highly recommend it. I just finished it. And uh, in that book, he shares a story about a lady in his congregation who was coming and learning about grace. And uh, she went up to him after one of their services, and she said, she said, you know, Pastor, you know, the gospel is really scary business. And he had never had anybody say anything like that to him, so he's like real curious, like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, for years, she said, I just thought that if I were a good person, you know, I would go to heaven because of my goodness and because of my good works. And... Uh, and she said, you know, I just believed that for so long. And she said, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, there would be some limits to what God could ask of me if we're saved by our own good works and our own goodness. Like I'd be a taxpayer with some rights. You know what I mean? Like I've done my duty and now I get payment back. I get goods and services back that, that are owed to me. But she said, but if the gospel is true, And we're not saved by our good works. We're only saved by the grace and mercy of God. She said, what's scary is this? There's no limit to what God could ask of me because it's clear I belong completely to him because of what he has done for me. I am not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. And that is exactly it, church. And that's the heart of the transformation process. That's the heart of what what drives the change in our lives as we kind of think about being the church that God wants us to be. You know, as we think about the vision for that, what kind of church does, does God want us to be? He wants us to be a church that's all in for him. That's all in for him. You know why? Because he went all in for us. While we were dead, disobedient, and doomed. And so I don't know what you're holding back from him. I just know this, that no one loves you like he loves you. No one cares for you like he cares for you. No one has done for you what he has done for you. And his desire is to pour his glory and his love into your life. And you need to take that up and give yourself to him. We, we love him because he first loved us. So if you trusted in him, and I'm not talking about just believing in, you know, intellectually that Jesus died. Yeah, I get that. He actually lived and died. I get that. I believe in that. The demons believe that. I'm asking the question, do you believe and do you trust? You put the weight of your life on what Jesus did for you because that's salvation. That's what it means to be saved and to be made alive in Christ. If you've not taken that step, take it today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you. We honor you. We give you glory. We can't even fathom, Lord, your love for us. Lord, that you are pursuing us, you are chasing us, You were hounding us, you were speaking to us, you were moving in us even before we recognized. We were so dead, we didn't even see it. But God, we give you praise for the glory of your grace, the the richness of your mercy, the greatness of your love. And God, I thank you for the clarity that the scripture brings to us. God, I thank you for the truth that it brings to us, that we can see ourselves for how you see us, that we were undeserving. That we were unworthy in every way, but loved by you. And so God, may we just, may we lean into your grace. May we lean into your love afresh and anew today. And so God, we just give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.